save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Welcome to the Explorers, the Nightbirds edition. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Your heels clack on the cobbles as you hurry down the alley. You don't want anyone to catch you knocking on this door. After you give the secret password, a bouncer lets you in, and your heart pounds at the clandestine thrill of it. Then you step through a beaded curtain into a swirl of color and sound. The club is filled with gangsters and adventure seekers. The jazz is hot, a sensuous promise, and the burnt sweet scent of bootleg magic hangs on the air. Girls' headbands smoke and unfurl petals as they dance together, their dresses seeming to change with every swing of their hips. Behind the bar, boys mix alchemical cocktails that will let people speak another language for a handful of minutes, or make time appear to slow down. Teeth have been made pointy with a swipe of wolf's grin. Pupils turned oblong by a bit of cat eye. The bootleg in this place must be worth a fortune, but none of it is as potent or as coveted as the magic in your veins. This is a dangerous place for a nightbird. You shouldn't be here. But you also know you wouldn't want to be anywhere else. My novel, Nightbirds, is a 1920s-tinted, fiercely feminist fantasy about a world where magic is illegal, but you can find it if you know which whispers to heed. None are as tantalizing as the ones about the Nightbirds, girls whom they say will gift their rare magic with just a kiss for a price. It's coming out on February 28th. If you're listening to this episode in real time, that means it's out today and I couldn't be more excited to share it with you. And I figured, what better way to do that, listeners, than by giving you a special excerpt from the Nightbirds audiobook. It's narrated by the incredible Saskia Marleveld, who has brought the story to life in all the ways I dreamed she would. I hope you love spending time in Simta as much as I do. If you like what you hear, I do hope you'll consider buying a copy of Nightbirds. You'll find it wherever you listen to audiobooks and print copies wherever good books are sold. Now, let's step into the fantastical, secret-filled city of Simto, shall we? Grab your best dress, a feathered mask, and your sharpest knife. Let's go traveling. Prologue the magic in a kiss. All his life, young Lord Tenerife Malon has heard whispers. They circled the edges of ballrooms and slithered through hushed conversations over port. The nightbirds will change your fortunes, 
the whispers promised. Their magic can be yours with just a kiss. If you can find them, that is, and meet their requirements. They are a privilege he's about to pay quite dearly for. At last, Tenny is allowed to remove his blindfold. For a moment, all he can make out is the bright burn of candles painting circles on the deeply purple walls. Then a woman perched behind a desk comes into focus, wearing a gown of fine velvet and a darkly feathered mask. It shrouds her face, mesh stretched over the eye holes. He knows her only by her code name, Madame Crow. She holds out a gloved hand, letting it hover. Your payment. Tenny's fingers shake a little as he extends the string of rubies. That shake is what gets him into trouble at the Krellen tables. It's such an obvious tell. Tenny is used to seeing money leave him, but it usually flows in the form of coins, not treasures pilfered from his dame's jewel box. The shame of it tastes like the last dregs of bitter wine. He is tired, nerves tattered from avoiding his rather nefarious creditor, and his sire's certain wrath if he finds out about his son's growing debts. Tenny's had a poor run of luck, is all. But tonight, that all changes. Madame Crow winds the rubies around her fingers. The dark gems seem to swallow the light. And your secret, she demands. Sweat slides down Tenny's collar. The jewels are payment enough, don't you think? She arches a brow. Secrets protect my girls better than gems, however pretty. I will have your secret, or you'll have nothing at all. Tenny sighs and hands her the note he wrote that afternoon, explaining it was he who took his dame's rubies. He threw in the extent of his debts and the dalliance with his family's maid for good measure. It's a risk to put these secrets into Madame Crow's keeping. But he knew money wouldn't be enough to get him through this door. The madam reads his secrets, then folds them up again. She holds a stick of purplish wax over a candle flame until it drips. His pulse picks up as she pours it onto the paper's folds and slides it toward him. He presses his house Malon ring into the wax, marking its contents as authentic, ensuring he will never tell a soul of what he sees tonight. That business done, the madam smiles. Which nightbird are you seeking? Tenny licks his lips. A few of his friends have boasted vaguely about their time with a nightbird, but the magic they spoke of seemed too fanciful to credit. Wild tales to trap desperate fools like him. The madam lays down three cards on the desk between them. They look like Krellen cards, but instead of mythical beasts and kings, they hold finely drawn birds. No nightbird's magic is the same, she explains. They are each a different vintage. The goldfinch will help you change your feathers, making you look like someone else. The ptarmigan gives the gift of camouflage, near invisibility. The nightingale will let you manipulate someone's emotions, smoothing them in whatever direction you desire. Tenny's mouth has gone dry. All magic is illegal in the Eudean Republic, but this kind is also incredibly rare. He's tasted plenty of alchemical magic, the kind that's mixed into cocktails in Simta's speakeasies and ground into powders in alchemists' back rooms. Such concoctions will let you speak another language for a handful of minutes, 
or make your skin glow in the dark. But a nightbird's gift is purer and so much more precious. It is what those alchemists and barkeeps try so hard to imitate. The gift only tends to linger for a few uses, the madam says. So choose wisely. Tenny is tempted by the nightingale, who might help him sway the outcome at the Krellen tables. But he doesn't want to cheat his way out of his trouble. He wants to win his fortune back by himself. He points to the goldfinch. The madam's smile turns sharp. As you wish. She gives him the rules. No lasciviousness, no demands, no pointed questions. He is too nervous to take in more than a few words. Then the blindfold goes back on, and someone leads him down a hall that smells of lilies. Thick carpet gives under his boots as slender fingers tuck him by the wrist. After a few twists and turns, they stop, and the fingers release him. Paper shuffles, the covert sound of a card being shoved under a door. Sweat dampens Tenny's cuffs. Ah, uh, how should I address her? He asks the darkness. There is a pause, then a scratchy male voice that makes him jump. By her code name. Otherwise, you don't need to address her at all. More silence. Guilt prickles at the back of Tenny's neck. His sire supports the prohibition and is a staunch abstainer. What would he say if he could see his son buying such magic with some stolen family jewels? Tenny sighs. He doesn't know why Krellen calls to him so strongly. Just that he loves how it offers players a chance to be pauper or king, god or mortal, a thrilling brand of risk. This night is a risk, as dangerous sweet as any. He turns his thoughts away from his sire and toward the goldfinch, only the goldfinch, the mysterious, miraculous magic to come. Tenny straightens his tie as a door clicks open. Light flickers through his blindfold, soft and warm. He is pushed forward, and then the door shuts behind him. You can look, the goldfinch says. It's just us now. Her voice is soft. No, rich, like blush wine from the Farlands, but strangely distorted. She must be burning some sort of voice-altering alchemical. Another layer of disguise. He takes off the blindfold. The room is dimly lit and richly furnished, dark wood draped in velvet and wine-colored rugs. Two chairs sit near the fireplace, deep and beckoning. Amidst it all is a girl in a mask. Hers is like Madame Crow's, covering most of her face in gold-edged feathers that catch the light of the candles on the hearth. The mesh over her eyes makes her anonymous, but he guesses she must be his age, perhaps younger though her smile speaks of a wisdom that is well beyond her years. She isn't a courtesan, he would be foolish to think it, but it's hard not to stare at those full, generous lips. Has he seen them before? It would be dangerous to put a name to them. There is a reason for the code names and the masks. Some would kill to have unfettered access to such magic. The church, and many of the city's staunchest abstainers, would likely kill the girls outright. No, it's better that she just be the goldfinch. Tenny doesn't need more trouble than he has. He bows deeply. 
Welcome evening, young lady goldfinch. Those lips curl, coy and playful. Young Lord Malon, aren't you a pretty surprise? His eyes follow the golden chain around her neck, traveling downward. Why do they call it a neckline when it tends to hang so much lower? He looks up, hoping she hasn't noticed. With the mesh over her eyes, it is impossible to tell. Let's have some wine, the goldfinch says. Or perhaps something stronger. He nods, though his stomach is twisted. Lady's choice. The goldfinch goes to pour the libations. The dark sequins of her dress wink as she moves. Truth be told, he isn't clear on the finer mechanics of the evening he's purchased. How will it start? How will it feel? She hands him a glass full of amber liquid that smells of pine resin and thunderheads. Fortune favor you, she says, tilting her glass to him. He swallows hard. And you as well. They drink. Tenny finishes his in one large gulp. He sits in one of the chairs, expecting her to perch on the other. Instead, she settles on his lap. Are you ready? She purrs. He nods, willing his hands to stop shaking. The goldfinch pulls out a simple black mask and fits it to the top half of his face. This is what will call up the magic, she says, when you're ready to use it. Just tie it on and envision the person whose face you want to wear. He leans into her touch, her skin as soft as petals. You will need to hold something belonging to the person you want to look like. A kerchief is fine, if they've recently held it. But hair or fingernails are better. He nods again. His heart is thumping wildly. It feels like the moment just before he lays out his Krellen cards, not knowing if he's won or lost. Now imagine how you will use my gift, she says. Put the image in your mind, strong and clear. It isn't hard. The images are there already. He sees himself walking into the Simpton Bank, wearing his sire's face, his voice, his manner, accessing the funds he needs to win his way out of the shadows. Money drips from his pockets, and once again he is golden, the son his sire expects him to be. The goldfinch tilts up his chin and kisses him. Tenny has kissed girls before. Boys too, for that matter. But those were only sparks compared with this fire. Her magic spills from her lips and past his, warm and heady, twining itself around his bones. He is drunk with it. It makes him feel like a king, perhaps a god. His arms go around her. He understands now why this girl is such a secret. To hold on to her, he would pay any price. Part One, A Thousand Layers of Secrets. Darling Mathilde, this dress is old, yes, but it's a fine vintage, one I believe will suit you well. I have had it recharmed so its jewel flowers unfurl as they did when I was in your shoes, with all the world shining before me. Let it be honey that lures in only the worthy. Let it be your armor, too. Fly carefully. 
my deepest love, Graham. A note from Lady Frey Denatris to her granddaughter. Chapter One Jewel, Star, and Sea Matilde is a thousand layers of secrets. Some sit against her skin, there for anyone who knows how to read them. Others are tucked into a rarefied language only a few girls can speak. Still others have wings, and they are hidden inside her. She smiles to herself behind her mask. As Matilde descends the stairs into the ballroom, heads swivel. This is precisely why she made her family wait for over an hour before leaving for Lita's season opening ball. Grand entrances, she finds, are the only kind worth making. Especially during the summer season, when Simta floods with people from all over the Udean Republic, come to make matches, deals, and fortunes in the city of tides. The room is full of finely dressed people, talking and swaying to a tasteful string quartet. It's clear that many of them have been to Simta's best trickster tailors, who have outdone themselves in chanting their outfits for the evening. The seed pearls at one girl's neckline unfurl into flowers. A boy's evening coat sparks every time someone touches it. Masks smoke, lapels bloom, gloves glow. Matilda's sure there are alchemical potions she can't see, hidden inside watch fobs and hollowed out canes. Lita's added some to her candles so they flame cerulean and emerald and black. Her house colors. Standing here, you would never know that magic is illegal. In the circles Matilde swims in, such laws barely apply. Her brother, Samson, gazes longingly at Asa, their pretty housemate. But she is busy staring wide-eyed at the room. After a sidelong glance to make sure their dame isn't watching, Samson snags a few drinks from a passing waiter and holds one out to her. Asa shakes her head. The newest nightbird seems too nervous to enjoy her first proper great house party. Matilde will have to work on that. I wish you had worn what I laid out for you, Matilde, her dame says. A dress with frothy skirts like Asa's and a far too tight bodice, the one that made Matilde look like a present wrapped for someone else. Really? Matilde does a twirl. I'm rather pleased with my choice. Her gown is a columnar sheath with beaded jewel flowers shimmering darkly against wine red velvet, gathered up at one hip with a golden clasp. She likes how it's somehow both loose fitting and suggestive. It's her grand's from when she was a nightbird, made over in the newest style. Perhaps that's why her dame doesn't like it. She thinks it's something Grand should have given her instead, just like her nightbird gift. Intrinsic magic runs through most of the great house bloodlines, passed down from woman to woman. But sometimes it skips a generation. Matilde doesn't think her dame has ever gotten over it. Dame purses her lips. It's just the cut is rather, Matilde smiles. Rather ravishing? I was thinking more along the lines of risque. Gran smiles in a way Matilde has practiced for endless hours, but has yet to master. Good fashion is never risque, she says, only a little daring. Dame's lips pinch together even tighter. Matilde runs a gloved finger down one of the jewel flower's beaded petals. It curls, trickster kissed to open and close as she moves. 
Gran has tried to grow real jewel flowers in their garden, but they don't do well outside the swamps of the Calistan. One bloomed last summer, though, its near black petals begging to be touched. Gran caught her hand before she could. This jewel's beauty is her trick, she said. She lures in prey by looking soft, and once they're close, she let a ribbon fall, and Matilde watched the flower swallow it, sizzling as the fabric turned to ash. She thinks of it often, that flower with a secret, poison in the guise of something sweet. Let's get to our table, Dame says. We must survey the season's prospects. Prospective suitors, she means. The army of boars she will pour onto Matilde's and Asa's dance cards, trying to push them both into an advantageous match. Really, Dame, Matilde says. We only just got here. Her dame lowers her voice. You've already had too many single seasons. People are starting to talk of it. Matilde rolls her eyes. I'm not a prime cut of meat at market. I won't start to stink if you leave me in the sun. She doesn't know why Dame froths over the issue. Most great house boys would eagerly wed a nightbird. They apply to Lita, their madam, for the privilege, even though they don't know who they're getting engaged to. From what Matilda's seen, they don't seem much to mind. The suitors are great houseborn and always diamonds. But choosing from a small curated jewel box isn't the same as choosing for yourself. She goes to hook an arm through Asa's, but Dame beats her to it. Asa looks like a fish caught on a line. Matilda has the notion that her Dame is pushing Samson toward Asa, not that he needs the encouragement. With red gold hair, lush curves, and green eyes, she is stunning. She has no money, but being a nightbird is a dowry all its own. She wonders if Asa can see her dame's machinations. Since she arrived, she seemed too homesick for the Illish Isles to see much at all. I'll take a turn first, Matilde says. Do a bit of my own surveying. Dame frowns. The last thing we need is you causing mischief. Matilde tugs at one long silken glove. I wasn't planning on it. Dame sniffs. You never do. Samson closes one eye behind his umber-colored mask, as if he might block out the brewing argument. Really, ladies, must we? Samson won't be chastised for the cut of his outfit, or made to dance with some sweaty lord with an underbite. Resentment burns hot on her tongue. Never fear, Matilde says. I don't imagine I'll break any rules between here and the refreshments table. Dame is clearly about to argue when Gran cuts in. Aura, it's Matilde's first party of the season. Let's allow her to enjoy it. Matilde waits as her dame pretends to consider it. She is not the head of House Denatris after all. Fine, she says at last. But don't be long, Matilde. And no cocktails. I mean it. With that, she heads toward their table, tugging Asa along with her. The girl looks back with don't leave me eyes, her bright hair burning in the shifting light. Matilde should rescue her from Dame's clutches, and she will, eventually. Samson follows, swiping a glass of Lita's signature cocktail and raising it in a mock toast to Matilde. Gran turns toward her, the gray-blue sequence of her simple mask winking. Don't mind your Dame, you know how she worries. 
Matilda adjusts her own mask. I've forgotten what she said already. It's a lie, of course. Dame's words from that afternoon are still circling. You cannot fly free forever. Eventually, you must settle down and build a nest. Matilda doesn't want to nest with someone who only wants her for her magic. She wants the freedom to choose a future for herself. She's right, though, Gran goes on. You will have to choose soon. Marriage is expected of a nightbird, so she can pass on her gift to a new generation of great house girls. It's practically demanded. The thought makes something tighten in her chest. Gran adjusts Matilde's corsage of wing lilies, their house's floral sigil, and gives her a secretive smile. I had adventures in that dress, you know. It has tricked many into thinking the girl beneath was soft and biddable. Matilde's lips tilt. Are you saying you got up to mischief in it? Perhaps. Gran taps the back of her hand with two fingers. Fly carefully, my darling. Matilde smiles at the nightbird watchwords. I'll do my best. She weaves through the room, guessing whom she might know and whom she should want to. Matilde enjoys secrets and puzzles, and so she loves the house's penchant for throwing masked summer balls. People grow bolder with their faces covered. They gamble with fortunes and with hearts. It's easy to tell who isn't from Simta. They have a shine in their eyes, like the wings of newborn flame moths, dazzled to see so much magic on display. Simta boasts the Republic's best trickster tailors and alchemists, and those with coin and connections know where their illegal concoctions can be found. Such powders and potions are coaxed out of herbs and earth, crafted by clever hands, and they make wonderful illusions. But it isn't like the magic that runs through Matilde's veins. Hers can't be brewed. It lives inside her, rare and unfiltered. She loves being a secret glittering in plain sight. She takes a deep breath. The air tastes of flowers and champagne, and the beginning of the season. It's a flavor that Matilde knows by heart. If this is to be her last summer as a nightbird, she's going to drink in every drop of it. She reaches for a coupe glass full of Lita's signature cocktail, Silva, Dreamer. The magic in it makes it taste of nostalgia, a favorite childhood treat, a sunny field, a stolen kiss. But as it slides across her tongue, her thoughts turn toward the future. In just a few hours, she will be the goldfinch for someone. Whose jewel flower will I be tonight? Sayer stalks the edges of the ballroom. She is used to being the watcher, not the watched and it feels like half the dashed room is staring at her. She stares back, fighting the urge to bare her teeth. Lita's ballroom reminds Sarah of a mini version of Simta, a series of rings that get prettier and richer as you make your way in. Servants, guards, and butlers stand by the walls, not really a part of things. They're the edges. A few steps in, you find the strivers trying to look like they belong. They're the fringes. A few steps more and you arrive at the great houses that form the privileged center of it all. Her dame was one of them once, glowing like the flame moths that fill lanterns in the garden district. Of course, that was before she tripped and fell out of their light. 
Sarah is supposed to be mingling, but all this glitz and empty talk is making her restless. The bootleg in this ballroom could probably buy a fleet of merchant ships. These people flash magic like gems, a status symbol, only the best for Simta's brightest young things. As a man tries to sneak a peek down her dress, she's sorely tempted to try and slip something out of his pocket, just for practice. Since leaving Griffin Quarter, she hasn't had much chance to use her cut purse skills, and no real need. Lita, her guardian, has been more than generous. Lita's told everyone that her prickly new ward is some distant cousin from the country. No one seems to have guessed she's the daughter of the late, disgraced, Nadia St. Held. Unlike her dame, Sayer grew up across the canals in Griffins. They lived above a silversmith's, in four rooms that smelled of metal polish and dusty castoffs from friends who never came to call. Until a few months ago, Sayer had barely set more than a foot in Pegasus Quarter, even though it was just across the water. It was another world, made wistful by her dame's rosy stories that all seemed to begin with if only. If only she had waited for Wylo Regnus to propose, instead of giving in to his desire for his favorite nightbird. If only he would regain his senses and come to claim them as his own. Sayer's magic first started stirring late, for a girl like her, only six months ago. Dame wanted to take her to the madam to be tested, but she refused. Until her dame's cough started bloodying whole kerchiefs, and her if-only words turned slurred and urgent. If only you would join the nightbirds, you could bring us back into the light. Sayer had no interest in joining her dame's old club, but she promised she would, hoping it would revive her. It didn't. And then she died, and Sayer found herself alone. Even then, she wasn't sure she would become a nightbird. But what else was there? Her options were to scrape together coins as a coffee girl, join a gang, or go to her estranged sire. Impossible. So here she is, at the heart of all her dame yearned to get back to. And all she wants to do is tear it down. She stops to watch a maid set up a coffee service on a side table. The smell takes her back to her days at twice lit, where she worked despite her dame's protests. After all, they needed the coin. She liked the smell of roasted twills and the sound of students at its tables, debating the movements of politics and stars. She liked the urchins and the sandpiper gang boys who hung around the shop even better. They taught her more useful things, how to blend into a crowd, wield a knife, steal with a smile. A partygoer brushes past the maid, making the stack of plates she's holding wobble. He uses steadying her as an excuse to move in close. Sayer can't see his hands, but the maid blushes fiercely at whatever part of her he is touching. The girl won't complain, though. The man's a lord. Sayer grimaces. In Simta, all the wrong people suffer. Sayer steps in. She doesn't need your help. Move along. The man makes an affronted noise, but moves on without protest. Oh, the maid says. Thank you, miss. She bobs a curtsy. The gesture makes Sayer feel annoyed. Can I help you set up? Sayer asks. The girl's eyes widen. Such work isn't meant for ladies. It's the same thing Dame said when she first got her job at Twice Lit. Words Sayer will never hear her say again. She clears her throat, swallowing down the painful weight there. 
The maid's refusal is just as well, as Sayer isn't sure she can bend down in this dress. It's in the latest style, its drop waist falling just below her hip bones, clinging to her in a dark blue-black sheath. A capelet drapes down her back, shimmering with tiny beads some tailor's trickster kiss to shoot like stars across it. Smile, my girl, Lita said when she presented it. You are a walking constellation, one that everyone will want to wish on. But shining brightly only makes people want to steal your glow. Later tonight, she'll become the ptarmigan, a codename Lita chose for her because of that bird's adroit camouflage. Sayer's magic has the power to help someone blend into their surroundings, letting them walk through the world unseen. She doesn't want this life, but she made her dame a promise. For a summer, at least, she'll see it through. Lita swore she could keep the ptarmigan's earnings. A couple months' worth will equal more than she could make it twice lit in a decade. It will set her up so that she never needs help, or this place again. From across the room, Mathilde catches Sayer's eye, crooking a finger. She seems to want the three of them to be a pretty flock of fledglings, sharing outfits and secrets and dreams. Nightbirds are like sisters, Dame told her once. They are the only ones who will ever truly know you. But where were they when her dame needed them? Probably laughing around a table at some gilded party like this. Sayer didn't come here for sisters. She came to pick these people's pockets for all they're worth. After all, she is not a star made for if-only wishes. She's the kind of star that burns. Ace's granda used to say she had a shelter within her. It's an old story, whispering of a time when the windswept Illish Isles held not just fishing nets and rusted tills, but strength and a deep, resonant magic, that one day it might come back again. They were always women, the shelters, he would say, stringing the day's catch up by the fire to cure. Touched by the wellspring they were, which as fierce as the sea, and just as fearless. They shot their foes with magic-kissed arrows, her gran would add, jabbing at his fancies. And rode bears with antlers. They needed no steeds, he corrected, as they had wings. Asa liked their intricately braided hair, woven with bones and sea-glass wishes. She longed for their fearlessness as well. Remember, my girl, Granda would say when the crops died, or the rent came due, you have a shelter singing through you. Just listen for her tune and have the courage to answer. Sometimes when she stood on the beach, its dark blue sand sucking beneath her, she thought she heard it, a song inside, deeper than want, stronger than fear. But she isn't a shelter. After all, she is only a girl. Granda died last winter, and after that Asa heard no more stories. Her own Da thinks they're just blasphemous tales. He is an abstainer and regular churchgoer, and the church of the Eshemane, the ones who drink, preaches that magic is holy, not to be grasped by mortal hands, certainly not by women. They corrupted it once, poisoning the wellspring from which all magic flows. That is why the church's potters once hunted the shelters. They think they rid the world of girls with magic running through them long ago. Yet here she stands, trying not to lose her nerve.
Asa positions herself against the wall beside a potted feather fern, relieved to be away from the Donatra's table and Aura's oppressive attentions. She still can't picture Matilde's dame and her own being friends, but they grew up in Simta together. Nothing Mam told Asa prepared her for this raucous place. The city's full to the brim with people speaking tongues she's never heard before, having many layered conversations that she struggles to take in. Even after a month of living with the Donatrices, she feels overwhelmed by it, this ballroom especially. Its cream-colored marble floor, twisted through with red waves, is nothing like the earthen one in her family's cottage. The stain of it won't leave her feet, no matter how hard she scrubs. Her frothy gown billows around her, its tulle the pale green-blue of the ice moss that grows along cliffs back in Illin. It's more modest than most, and yet she still feels exposed by it. Mirrors fill the room, but she can't bring herself to look. She needs to find one of her fellow nightbirds. Surely her first ball will be less terrifying with them beside her. But they are still mostly strangers. Matilde, bright and impatient, and Sayer, all shielded eyes and sharp-edged words. Anyway, they are from Simta. They don't understand what it means to be an outsider, full of a homesickness that surges every time you take a breath. She misses her family, her wild cliffs, the familiar crash of the ocean. All she wants is to go home. You're here now, Matilde said just days ago as she painted Ace's nails the palest blue. No more dirt floor and fish cakes. Why not let yourself enjoy it? How can she, knowing what lives inside her, that soon she will have to let it out? She remembers the night Lita came to their cottage, Da was gone on a trip to Kagan Way, hunting for work. The autumn fishing had been bad, and their table held little but sour cakes and a jug of swiftly turning milk. Until she came, Asa didn't see how thin Mam was. Her clothes like ill-fitting sails, hanging windless, hungry for more than their life could give. At first, Asa thought Lita was one of Mam's old friends come to visit. But then why did Mam keep wringing her hands, eyes darting to the door? In the end, the deal was simple. Asa would have lavish room and board, and an advantageous marriage into a great house. Her family would be taken care of, their future secured. Will she be safe? Ma'am asked Lita. She will be a secret. All secrets in my care stay safe. What must she do to give her magic to someone? It's just a touch, just a kiss. Later, when Asa asked Mam if Da knew, she said he couldn't. She would tell him that an old Simpton friend offered to sponsor their daughter, and he would take her at her word. When Asa asked if she had to go, Mam said yes, because she wanted better for her. You need this, Asa. We all need this. And we both know that you cannot stay here. Even now, she isn't sure if she chose to go, or if Mam sold her. It shouldn't matter if it means they won't ever have to struggle again. Dancers twirl around her. An older couple, a group of girls, two young men holding each other close. It hurts her eyes, the way their clothes shift colors and move in phantom winds. She has never seen such wanton displays of magic. In his sermons back home, Potter Toth rails against such uses of magic, preaching that it's a moral duty to abstain. Guilt stings. 
what would he say about her magic? Probably the same thing he says about vice and the scarlet moss that grows amidst the ginny fields. Such things must be ripped out before they spread. Oh, but she tried. After what happened with Ennis Dale, she prayed to the Eshamane to take the magic out of her. She filled her hair with sea glass and made wishes on them all. A man steps in close, blocking her view of the dancers. He has bronzed olive skin, like most symptoms, and is many things, very round, very red, very shiny. A sticky-looking mass of flowers hangs from his lapel. Good season, young lady. And to you, she stammers. Is that right? Her symptoms rough when she's nervous. His mask gleams copper against his wine-flushed cheeks. How fares your evening? She grasps for words she learned during Aura's etiquette lessons. Favorable, I thank you. He smiles, lips wet with grease from the plate of meat he is holding. The nearest table of food has gone mostly untouched. Such a waste. Is that an illish accent I hear, he says. How charming. Whereabouts? Asa sighs, grateful to speak about something familiar. Aiden Way, at the edge of the fair. Ah, of course. He launches into a story she struggles to follow about his grand dame's country house with charming chimneys that smoked and a red-headed maid. And she wonders, will he be at the nightingale's door later tonight, demanding kisses, asking for things it feels blasphemous to give? His hand finds hers, his gaze too hungry. Dance with me. She wants to pull away, but feels frozen. Really, I... Would rather not. He doesn't seem to hear her. Oh, come now, you're too lovely to hide against the wall. Let the room enjoy you. She swallows. Mathilde says her beauty is an advantage, but it makes her feel like a target. Sometimes beautiful seems like a dangerous thing to be. Someone steals her gloved hand from the shiny man's grip. Asa exhales. Darling. Matilde says, where have you been? I've been desperate for you. The man puffs out his chest, clearly affronted by the interruption. Young Lord Brendel, Matilde says, is that you? He lets out a braying laugh. Not even a mask could make me look like my son, young Lady Denatrus. She bats at his arm. It wipes years from you, Lord. I swear it, you had me utterly fooled. Matilda is so elegant, all chestnut waves and sparkling amber eyes, so at home in this world. She doesn't seem afraid of anything. The man looks back at Asa. And what business have you with this dazzling creature? It's quite scandalous, Matilda says, smiling wickedly. Not fit for your innocent ears. He grumbles, but Matilda is already looping her arm through Asa's. At the press of skin to skin above their gloves, something tingles. It's always like this when they touch, a call and response in some unknown language. Asa assumes it's the magic within them. It makes her want to both pull close and pull away. That man is odious. Matilde's nose wrinkles. More ferret than lord. Asa tries to answer, but her breath is a wave that won't come back to her. 
The room is spinning, the lights like spirits in mist. Air is made for breathing, darling. Matilde hands her a glass of something cool. So breathe, and drink this. Matilda's not one to take refusal lightly, so Asa tips the cocktail back. It tastes of ocean spray and the cakes Mom used to make on harvest Sundays. She tries not to let a sob rise in her throat. You don't need to be nervous, Matilda whispers. There's nothing in this room to fear. But this place is full of sharks, and she is a minnow. She feels certain it will swallow her whole before the season's done. Matilde sighs. If Asa's going to thrive, she needs to learn how to deal with lecherous weasels like Brendel. The trouble is that she's a terrible liar. Matilde has tried to teach her the art of deception, but she's frightened of everything, and her pale, illish skin does her no favors when it comes to hiding blushes. You do know this is a party, don't you? Matilde asks. It's meant to be enjoyed. I know. It's just that I have a feeling... What kind of feeling? Asa bites her lip. That something bad is going to happen. It's a good thing Tenny Malon didn't choose the nightingale the other night. In Matilde's opinion, the girl doesn't seem ready to see clients. But the first night of the season is a time of high demand. She pushes an errant lock of Asa's hair behind her ear. We're well guarded. You don't need to worry. Asa doesn't look convinced. I just wish... She lets her wish hang unfinished, so Matilde casts her eyes over the crowd. Distraction is in order. Let's take a turn. As they circle the room, Matilde explains who is who amongst the dancers. She doesn't point out her past clients or tell Asa what the goldfinch made possible for each. The lord who impersonated a business rival to discredit him in front of associates. The young lady who made herself look like a certain sailor so she could sneak her way onto a naval ship. What some do with her gift, she doesn't know, and doesn't want to, truly. But she thinks it must be thrilling to wear so complete a mask. She wouldn't know. Nightbirds can only gift their magic to others, though family lore says the women she's descended from could use it for themselves. She grew up with bedtime stories about the feats of the powerful girls they once called firebirds. They sound like goddesses, parting seas and moving mountains, Tempting tales that seem too good to be true. A house matron glides by them, leaving a trail of trickster smoke behind her. So much magic, Asa whispers. Don't any of them fear the law? Prohibition, she means, championed by abstainers and the church, whose potters do love to drone on about how magic is a holy thing, not to be touched. Lita's parties are very exclusive, Matilde says. There aren't any abstainers or wardens here. For coins and favors, many of them will avert their gazes from parties like this one. None would dare break down a great house door anyway. And you don't fear them? Asa asks. Matilde twirls, and the jewel flowers on her dress all snap closed. Oh, please. If a warden saw me in this dress, he'd only slap my wrist. No, I mean... Because of the other kind. Their intrinsic magic? Matilde smiles. Of course not, darling. According to the church, girls like us don't exist. Prohibition's a bore, but it's never really felt like it applied to her. 
Mathilde finds there's something of a thrill in breaking rules. She taps a foot. Where has Sayer skulked off to? Missing me already? Mathilde and Asa both jump. Dirty shills, Sayer, Mathilde swears. What have I told you about sneaking up on people? Sayer gives her a pointy smile. It's not my fault you're easy to scare. Her golden eyes shine out from her midnight mask, her near black bobbed hair slicked back in fetching waves. The new fashions suit her long lean frame. But even in fine fabric, Mathilde would know she didn't grow up in Pegasus. It's something in the way she prowls, a hungry cat. And what have you been up to, Mathilde asks. Picking pockets. Sayer's expression doesn't change. Only the loose ones. Lita wouldn't tell Mathilde where Sayer came from, but Dame says she has Nadia St. Held's golden eyes. Nadia St. Held, who it said lost her place as a nightbird because of some clandestine love child. Mathilde would do a saucy dance for Lord Brendel if it meant gaining access to that secret. But Sayer's lips are closed tighter than a Farland's oyster shell. Mathilde pulls them both close. Let's play a game. Sayer groans. Not this again. Mathilde stifles a frustrated sigh. She misses being a nightbird with Petra, Siv, and Octavia. Misses the easy gossip and secrets whispered over pilfered wine. Nights with them used to sparkle, full of promise. But Petra has been busy since she got married this past winter, as have Siv and Octavia, married a few months before that. Their magic dims after a decade or so, sometimes two, which is why nightbirds tend to marry after only a season. From then on, they reserve their gift for their spouse. Matilda was alone until a few months ago, when Sayer came, Asa arriving some weeks after. Sometimes it's worse than being a party of one. We each tell one secret, Matilda continues, and the others have to guess if it's true. Fine. Sayer tilts her head, making her mask sequins wink. I've got a knife under my dress. Matilda arches a brow. I very much fear that one's true. But where in the dark depths do you hide it? You said one secret. Now it's your turn. Her lips start to curl. Why not have fun with it? I've developed a fancy for an alchemist's apprentice. We talk of running away into the sunset. False. Sayer shoots back. You're too in love with the high life. He'd never dream of flying out of your gilded cage. Matilde stiffens, but Sayer is all sharp corners with no desire to be blunted. She has a way of making Matilde feel weighed and judged. It's not a cage we're in, darling. It's a club, something I think you desperately want to belong to. Sayer's golden eyes glimmer. The girls at the Purple Pony are a club too. You don't see me lining up to join it. Don't fight, Asa warns. Not here. Matilde ignores her. Must you say it like that? Like what? Like what we do is whoring. Well, isn't it? Anger flares. You would think that, given who your dame is. Asa gasps. Something shoots through Sayer's eyes like a star, too fast to catch. She storms away without another word. Matilde, Asa intones, that was unkind. Matilde tugs at one of her gloves. Was it? Her dame only passed away a few months ago. Her cheeks flame. 
Dash it, she started it. Still, Asa says, gaze trailing after their fellow nightbird. Sayers hurting. How would Asa know that? Are they having deep chats when Matilde's back is turned? Love your sisters, Gran used to say when she and Petra argued, or Siv acted jealous, or Octavia threw a shoe. But these two, guarded and timid, don't appreciate what it means to be a nightbird. They don't seem to want to know her at all. She turns, looking for a diversion, and catches sight of Samson walking toward them, a friend in tow. It's Tenerife Malon. She knows it's him, despite his bright mask. They grew up in the same circle, playing in drawing rooms while their dames plotted social domination over brunch. But that's not why she knows him in this moment. This tingling recognition always lingers after someone comes to see the goldfinch. For a week or more, she could find them anywhere in Simta. Her magic glows in him like a flame moth, a light only she can see. The boys are in front of them now, bowing. Samson smiles, swallowing Asa with his eyes. Asa, may I have the honor? After a moment, she nods. They swirl off, and suddenly it's just her and Tenny. He reaches for her. Young Lady Denatris, will you join me? She's not nervous. Clients never seem to look at Matilde and see the goldfinch. People only see the parts of her she wants them to. Since you asked nicely, his hands go around her. You look wonderful, Matilde, but then you always do dazzle. You look rather handsome yourself. Tenny looks much better than he did when she kissed him a week ago. He must have used the goldfinch's magic to advantage. What she can see of his face is flushed with drink and triumph. Samson tells me you've been rather lucky lately. He puffs out his chest. I've had a few good turns at the Krellen tables. My skills are improving. I might even be able to beat you. At Krellen? Please. A boy can dream. She doesn't know how, but she is sure it's her magic that helped turn him so golden. And yet how easily he pretends he did it all on his own. He pulls her in. The scents of clove smoke and the honeysuckle pinned to his lapel are overpowering. That's not the only thing I've been dreaming of, he says. Is that so? My sire says it's time for me to find myself a wife, and it strikes me you would make an awfully fine one. The way he says it, as if it's a foregone conclusion, sparks an angry heat inside her chest. That's a little presumptuous. He laughs. Ah, uh, come now, I'm not so bad a catch. Tenny isn't the brightest flame moth in the lantern, but he is handsome, and from a prestigious great house. On paper, he is as fine a match as any. But she isn't going to be anyone's pretty decoration. She is poison in the guise of something sweet. She smiles, flashing teeth. I'm not sure you could afford me. He mistakes her meaning. Of course he does. Oh, I'm sure I could keep you in style. Over his shoulder, Matilde glimpses her dame watching them, face alight. No doubt she's already planning the reception. How she would love to see Matilde on Tenny's arm, walking toward a future full of tasteful dinners and putting someone else's wants before her own. All at once, Matilde feels mutinous. That angry spark is now a leaping flame. She leans in close. I hope you've held on to your mask. He touches his face, nonplussed. 
Aren't I wearing it? Not that one, she purrs. The one you got from the gold-feathered bird. His mouth drops open. She should stop, but the words are tumbling off her tongue. You wouldn't want to lose so precious a souvenir, would you? Who knows if you'll ever taste such riches again. The song comes to an end, and she turns to leave him, pursing her lips into a shape he will remember, and blowing him a kiss. His eyes widen, recognition blooming in them. Matilde walks away, heart pounding hard. Did she really just reveal her secret to Tenny Malon? She doesn't know what possessed her to let it flow. She just wanted to wipe that assured smile off his face, destroy his certainty. It did that, at least. But ten hells. She grabs another cocktail and takes a deep, steadying sip. The music flows in liquid streaks around her. She knows each step the dancers will take, every gesture. Watching them move is a reassuring thing. After all, this is her world, her rules. She owns it wholly. Nothing can hurt her in this game she knows by heart.